let's uh, open our Bibles to Mark chapter 14, a more serious chapter. We started last week. This is the longest chapter in the Gospel of Mark. We talked about how there's three sandwiches in this chapter. Last week, we looked at two. This week, we're going to look at the passion of Jesus Christ and the last sandwich of this chapter. After this chapter, we have one more sandwich. And if you're new here, this is your first time, and you're wondering, what is he talking about sandwiches? It's just that I like food, okay? So any way I can fit it into a Bible study, you know, I try, kind of. What, what Mark does, they call them these Markian sandwiches. He, he takes an idea. Instead of just saying a story for what it is, he, he starts with an example of something. And then the next story is the meat. It's the heart of what he's trying to communicate. And then he wraps it up with the third thing that ties the whole thing together to really convey a thought or his heart or a part of the story. They're not supposed to be separate. These three stories or these three things we look at individually, they, they work together to give us a better picture of what he's trying to communicate. So we will look at one of those today toward the end. Before we get into the word, though, let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, thank you for today, because tomorrow doesn't matter. We don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. We don't know what's going to happen next week. You tell us not to worry about it. You tell us to just worry about, seek you today. And God, that's what we want to do today. We want our hearts to be in a place where we are open and willing. We have fertile soil for your word to be sown that it may produce much fruit. We want to be fruit bearers for your glory. We want people to see holiness that doesn't come from us, isn't of ourselves, but that it's you. You are the light. You produce that fruit as the vine dresser in our lives, and it is produced unto your glory. So God, give us those hearts to receive your word, to meditate on your word this week, to love each other today, to be equipped to go out and to love others in the world. We pray that you'd speak to us, reveal yourself to us through your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Nothing in all the Bible compares, nothing compares to the agony that Jesus went through in the Garden of Gethsemane the the night that he was betrayed. We're going to see that. Not Abraham leading his son up to the mountain to sacrifice him, not anything any of the patriarchs went through, nothing compares. That's why this is called the passion And as I was meditating on it and praying about it, the Lord really just stirred my heart emotionally for the Son of God who pleaded for his own life, as we will see. And it made me think, it made me look at me, my problems, my issues. And then when I compared it to or contrasted it to what Jesus was going through in that garden, It makes me feel silly. Now, I by no means want to downplay what trials you and I are going through, but it does help to be able to put into perspective what this life is really about. Let's start in chapter 14, picking up in verse 32 as we left off in 31 last week. Then they came to a place which was named Gethsemane, and he 
And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took Peter, James, and John with him, and he began to be troubled and deeply distressed. Then he said to them, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. Stay here and watch. Now, for somebody who understands and realizes that Jesus is the Son of God, this might be a little, you know, worrying. It might be questionable. Like, Jesus, you know that you're going to rise from the dead and be seated at the right hand of the Father. You've been telling people. So what is this anguish that Jesus is feeling and that is so clearly, intentionally communicated to us, specifically through the Gospel of Mark this morning? First of all, we see that he asks the others to stay in a designated place while he prays. The first thing that you and I have to do when we start to go into a trial or a temptation is we have to separate ourselves from the situation and go to our Heavenly Father in prayer. I've said this before, and I have to say it again. I don't know how many times I've had somebody in my office talking about something that they're struggling with or they're going through or a difficulty or a trial or a tribulation, and the first thing I ask them is, have you prayed and sought God about this? And they say, uh, yeah, I prayed. Yeah, I prayed. And I say, have you, have you prayed? Have you fasted? Have you cried out with all your heart? Well, well no, I, I, I just said, hey, God, help me out here, okay? I'm going to go talk to Pastor Tim, see what he has to say. God wants to talk to you. He wants to help you. And Jesus, in this moment of desperation, he goes to the one place where he can get answers. God, he's going to pray. He says, you guys sit here. And he takes with him Peter, James, and John. And began, he began to be troubled and deeply distressed. Then he said, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. Stay here and watch. Why did Jesus instruct Peter, James, and John to stay and watch? Because, as we'll see in the upcoming verses, if there was any possibility whatsoever that Jesus would not have to go to the cross, he would have these guys ready. And if the Father gave a different way, they'd be able to mobilize and leave, or whatever the case may be. Now, I want you guys to understand this. Do you have to do things that you don't want to do? Got to clean up the dog poo. Man, that's a stinky job. I got to love somebody that hates me. I got to do something that is uncomfortable for me. Jesus did not want to go to the cross and die. Do you know why? Because dying's uncomfortable, it's painful. No. Jesus did not want to go to the cross and die because he wasn't just dying himself, he was dying for the whole of humanity. The Bible says that he took our sins upon himself. He bore our iniquity. What he was going to feel as the judgment of God was not just a personal judgment that he could get behind because he deserved it. Jesus did not deserve it. He did not deserve it. And what he was going to feel, what he was anticipating, was the weight of the entire world's sinfulness on his shoulders. My soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. Stay here and watch. I had to think, 
What makes me to this? Have you guys ever been in a place in your life before where you thought it's so bad and it's so hard that you just want to die? Have you ever been in that place before? That's what Jesus is saying. I've been in that place multiple times, probably three or four times, seriously, where I was going through such a trial. It was so difficult. I said, Lord, please just take me home. I, want to, I don't want to be here anymore. I don't want to go through. It would be better if I just wasn't here. The first time that I really felt like that, and I hope this doesn't sound too silly or crazy, you know, because we all, we, we assess things differently. I was in a, in a volatile a bad, unhealthy relationship through high school. And as I got out of that relationship, I started walking with the Lord when I was 19. And, and again, maybe this sounds silly, and I, I, I don't even want to say it because it, it sounds so silly. But <laughs> Bridget, I, I always had a girlfriend growing up, you know, always had, had a girlfriend, was attracted to girls. And there, you know, if one was on the way out, the other one was, you know, I was looking for who was the next one. And when I started walking with the Lord, I was like, you know what, God, I don't want to live like that anymore. I, I want my focus to be you. And I made a covenant with God. I said, God, I want to make a covenant with you now that I'm walking with you. I do not want to date ever again. I don't want to date anybody, and the next person that I do enter into some kind of a relationship, I want it to be my wife. I don't want to give myself to anybody else ever, and I took it very seriously, and, and, and I'm sure the Lord is looking at me saying, okay, Tim, you know, let's, let's see how, how this goes. And in, in that season of singleness, because I made that commitment to God, that covenant, I didn't know how long it was going to take. And as the years went by, I was like, God, I, I can't be alone. I can't be single. This is so hard. Just take me home now. I don't want to be here anymore. Sounds ridiculous, right? It is ridiculous. And then there she sits, my lovely wife, the fulfillment of God's promises to me and the grace that I receive on a daily basis. Another one, you know, you're driving down the road. We were in Southern California last week. I remember why I hate California so much. I was talking to a brother who came to the conference who stayed with some friends. And uh, he said, my friends live 25 minutes, a half an hour away. It took me over two hours to get here this morning. And I said, I love you, Jesus. Thank you for Las Vegas. Hallelujah. With the heat and all. We find ourselves in places and positions where we think our life is pretty crummy or pretty bad. But in reality, you know, he who holds tomorrow knows what he has in store for you. Today may be bad, but then we have the opportunity to run to the Lord, to cry out to him and to say, God, please help me in this moment. Take this cup from me. We haven't even got there yet. He went a little farther, verse 35, and fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. I was just talking to a brother yesterday who reminded me, we reminded each other in conversation, that the 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 purpose of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ was not just the sacrificial element of the sacrifice. It was also closely connected, if not just as important as the obedience and submission of Jesus Christ's will to the Father's will. 
And you know why that's so important? Because maybe you don't face death every day, but you face your own will versus the Father's will every single day. Every day you wake up and there's challenges that come into your life that you can say, God, not my will, but your will be done. And you know what? That's hard. That's really hard. And Jesus is submitting himself to the Father and saying, not my will be done, but yours. He said to him, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. This word Abba is a term of endearment and intimacy and closeness. It is not used on the lips of Jesus in any other gospel at any other time. This is the only time that Jesus cries out to God and says, my daddy, my father, you who know me, I know you. All things are possible for you. This is the kicker. Because in this moment, in this moment of extreme emotion, as Jesus is crying out to his dad for help in this moment, you better believe, you had better believe that if there were any other way that God could save mankind instead of sacrificing his son, that he would have done it. He would have done it. He didn't take pleasure in seeing his son murdered and crucified on a cross. So I have this question. People ask me, they say, hey, you're a Christian. That's great. I got this and I got that. And there's this way and that way. And all roads lead to Rome. And I and I cry and I say, my Jesus died for my sins. If he didn't have to, then I don't want him to. That means if there's another way that he didn't have to be brutally sacrificed on a cross, his blood shed, his body broken for my sin, not his own sin, my sin. And this first part of chapter 14, or this second part of first sec, the first part of the second study that we're looking at this morning, it reminds me how undeserving Jesus was. You see somebody who is crying out with all of their heart and saying, God, I'm willing to do it, but I really don't want to. And there's anything else that you can do because I know that all things are possible with you if there's any other way. Spoiler alert. Jesus went to the cross. There was no other way than the perfect sacrifice of the Son of God, His blood shed for your and my sins. And what that looks like, if you want to enter into a right relationship with God the Father, which is the purpose that Jesus Christ died on the cross, if you want to enter into a relationship with God the Father through His Son, Jesus Christ, it comes through repentance. It does not come from raising your hand. It does not come from asking Jesus into your heart. It comes through repentance. God, I am sorry for my sin. I do not want to live like that sinner anymore. I receive the sacrifice of your son, Jesus Christ. There's no other way. 
for me to be reconciled to you than through him. Because if there was, I know in Mark chapter 14, you would have done it. You would have done it. Then he came and found them sleeping and said to Peter, Simon, are you sleeping? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray lest you enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. So Jesus instructs them to pray. He goes away. He decides to check on them, and they're sleeping. Look, at this is important right here. In verse 37, he came and found them sleeping and said to who? Peter. How, what was that name? Where did that name come from? Jesus renamed him. He said, no longer will you be called Simon. You'll be called Peter, right? And what does it say? Simon. <laughs> you know, I have a nickname for the Lord. Not for the Lord. The Lord has a nickname for me. He renamed me at a point in my life. I'm not going to get into the whole story, okay? But I have a nickname that the Lord uses when I'm being a dummy, okay? I'm, I'm doing stuff that I shouldn't be doing. I'm not, I'm not trusting him in faith. And, and the Lord says, hey, and he uses that name. A lot of times what he'll do is he'll have other people call me that name. One day I had three people in a row call me by this name. I'm like, Lord, I'm listening. What did I do? You know why? You know, you're not walking in faith, Tim. So I'm going to call you by the name that you're demonstrating right now. You know who the third person was that day who called me by the other name? My mom. So if you think, you know, that it's not the Lord, my, you know, I'm standing in the kitchen, my mom says, hey, and she calls me by, I'm not going to tell you because I know you guys are going to tease me. It's not funny. Knock it off. My mom says, hey, so-and-so, could you grab this out of the fridge for me? I said, mom, did you give birth to me? Right? You named me, right? You know, how long have we been living together, you know, my whole life? Why would you call me that? She's like, called you what? I said, call me that. She said, I didn't call you that. I said, Mom, the Lord's trying to get my attention. I apologize. Peter, Simon, are you sleeping? Could you not watch one hour, watch and pray, lest you enter into temptation? Simon was the man that Jesus found and originally called. You know, in our walk with the Lord, as we're following him, as we're seeking him, we go through different seasons, we go through different things where we can either act like the new man and respond like the new man should because we're new creations in Christ, right? We've been buried with him in a watery baptism. We've been raised to newness of life. We're a new creation. We're born again spiritually. And there's times where we can walk in that new man and there's sometimes we can walk in the old one. Even the apostle Paul struggled with that. Jesus is identifying with Simon Peter that he's not in the right frame of mind right now. And not only is Jesus being tempted to not go to the cross right now, he's asking God to help him in this situation, but he's warning Peter, you're going to fall into temptation too. The servant is not greater than his master. This is a difficult time for all of us. Watch and pray lest you enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Can I get an amen? Amen. Man, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. You guys know I've been on a diet, right? 
I'm not going to tell you. I don't want to brag, you know, but I've lost some weight. I don't know if you can tell or not, but, you know. <laughs> Friday night, I'm, I'm sleeping. I go to sleep in my bed. It's really comfortable, and I had a dream. Uh, my wife and I and some friends, we went to a restaurant together, and we were hanging out, talking, you know, having fun. You know, even in the dream, it felt like, oh, this is fun. We're hanging out, having a good time. The waitress comes over and asks us our orders, and I said, I'll, I'll have a salad because I've been eating a lot of stinking salad lately. In my dream, I'm like, I, I, I'd like a salad, please. So that's fine. We keep talking. They start bringing our food out to us, and they bring me, and it's not just, it, it wasn't just a plate. She brought out a platter. It was like this big. She brought it, and the, on, in the middle of it, the entire circumference, just running right down the middle of this platter, was a huge Philly cheesesteak. It looked, in my dream, I could smell it. It was glorious. The cheese was dripping over. I started to salivate in my dream, and I, and I felt hurt. You know, I turned to her, and I said, listen, I ordered a salad. I didn't order this. She said, oh, no, don't worry about it. You just go ahead and eat that. And she turned around and walked away from me. And here I have, everybody's eating. We're at dinner, and I've got this huge, one of my favorite meals, a fat, delicious, delectable Philly cheesesteak on my plate. And I'm like, I can't, I can't eat it. And I didn't eat it. I didn't know it was a dream. If I knew it was a dream, I would have eaten it. And it would have been a good memory for the rest of the week. I'm like, oh, that Philly cheesesteak dream was so good. I can still taste it. I didn't. Listen, I can't go to sleep without the flesh messing with me. I'm, I'm trying to sleep. And the flesh is like, hey, dude, you want a Philly right now? I'm like, it's three o'clock in the morning. Brain, what are you thinking? Well, I got that message from your stomach, so don't blame me. <laughs> Listen, the flesh is weak. We find ourselves having good intentions to do good things. That's why a couple weeks ago, we talked about application in the word of God as a church. If we're not taking and applying these things to our life, nothing else matters. You're like a man that, or a woman for that matter who goes to the mirror and looks at themselves in the mirror and then immediately forgets what they look like as they walk away. Do you know what that verse implies? That verse implies that when you go to the mirror, the mirror of God, the word of God is the mirror. It reflects, it shows us our deficiencies, right? You go to the mirror, you see the deficiencies, just like you wake up in the morning and you go in front of the mirror in the bathroom and you see your hair is messed up. My mustache likes to go, eh, you know, and I got to, you know, get everything ready to go, you know, but I look and I see the deficiencies in the mirror and I see what needs to get done. I need to brush my teeth. They're getting kind of yellow. You know, I need to, there's a spot on my shirt. And then I, as soon as I walk away, I immediately forget what I look like and I go outside in the world. Hey, how's it going? (laughs) Hey bro, did you look in the mirror this morning? Yeah, I did, but you know, no application, right? It doesn't matter. I, I saw myself. That's what the word of God does. It shows us our deficiencies, what needs to be addressed not so that we can fancy ourselves up and look better to others and be hypocrites, but so that we can truly, genuinely address things that the Word of God wants to address in us so that we can be more like Jesus. The Spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. What in this season of life are you in right now where you know God's called you to do something? You know He's put something on your heart. You know that he's given you a particular gift in the body of Christ, and you've been resistant. What is it? I don't know what it is for you. 
like always, I know what it is for me because I'm all too aware of my deficiencies. What do you do with that? You kind of just try to sweep it under the rug a little bit and get away with it. You know, maybe I can address that later. It's never going to go away. Just because you have a willingness does not mean that you don't have to crucify the flesh and die to something in your life that by dying to that thing, you're going to get life. I don't think people realize that, you know. When Jesus calls us to die, to, to pick up our cross and follow him, crucify the flesh, I don't think people realize that when we die to ourselves, we become alive to the will of God. When we die to our will, God's will has place and room to dwell in our hearts richly and produce abundant life and fruit. You want that. Trust me, you do. You don't want to continue to live in a state of trying to get by and be comfortable with the things that you think are, are, are pleasant or, or nice or good for you because it's in the flesh. You've got to die to those things so that you can truly experience life. Again, he went away and prayed and spoke the same words. And when he returned, he found them asleep again for their eyes were heavy and they did not know what to answer him. No joke. Then he came the third time and said, are you still sleeping and resting? It is enough. The hour has come. Behold, the son of man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. You know what those verses speak? They speak of the will of the son of God saying, if there's no other way, not my will be done, but your will. And he's going to meet those who he knows are going to take him into the city, have a mock trial. Make no mistake, the trial of Jesus Christ was not even condoned in the Old Testament law. They totally circumvented what was required. They went around it and he would ultimately be nailed to the cross. Verse 43, And immediately while he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve with a great multitude with swords and clubs, came from the chief priests and the scribes and elders. Now his betrayer had given them a signal, saying, Whomever I kiss, he is the one. Seize him and lead him away safely. As soon as he had come, immediately he went up to him and said to him, Rabbi, Rabbi, and kissed him. Then they laid their hands on him and took him, and one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Then Jesus answered and said to them, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to take me? I was daily with you in the temple teaching and you did not seize me, but the scriptures must be fulfilled. Then they all forsook him and fled. Another part of the death of Jesus Christ that we have to consider this morning is that it wasn't a death where he had people rallying around him. They didn't understand what was happening. They had a completely different understanding of who Jesus was supposed to be in their minds. And it's at this point, as they're seizing Jesus, they all flee. They all leave. They all abandon him. This is what's going to take us into 
this next sandwich session section, but I do want you to take a look back at verse 45. As soon as he had come, immediately he went up to him and said to him, Rabbi, Rabbi, and kissed him. The ultimate sign of affection, of love, was used as an instrument of hate. You don't kiss somebody that you're not close to, that you don't truly love, but he did it as a form of betrayal to betray Jesus. Now a certain young man followed him having a linen cloth thrown around his naked body and the young man laid hold of him and the young men laid hold of him and he left the linen cloth and fled from them naked. There's a lot of speculation about this verse. Some people believe that it's Mark himself he includes this. The reality is and this is where I always go to uh, biblically when I see something like this that's kind of gray. The reality is we don't know who it is, but what does it give us in the story? Why is it communicated to us in the story? Because they left him utterly, naked, fleeing from him. They left him. That was the most important thing in their mind that they would get away from this situation. Even this young guy who just had something around his body to cover up his name, even if they were going to snatch that from him, he was gone too. He was completely and utterly abandoned. Verse 53 starts the first part of our third sandwich in the chapter of 14. So now we're going to get into the sandwich and look at how these three things come together. And, and really what it speaks of, the meat or the middle part of this sandwich speaks of the true witness. And we'll see how and why that's applied. And they led Jesus away to the high priest and with him were assembled all the chief priests, the elders, and the scribes. But Peter followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest, and he sat with the servants and warmed himself by the fire. So we're going to Jesus' trial now. They're leading him to the place where they're going to pronounce some judgment over him or give him some kind of mock trial. And everybody's gone except there is Peter who is keeping a distance behind him. And we see that Peter said before that he would never leave the Lord. He'd even be killed with the Lord if that's what it took. But now he's distanced himself from the Lord. How does Peter respond in trial, in adversity? He distances himself. Sometimes as Christians, we call ourselves Christians because we're Christ-like, we're little Jesus says that's the intention, that's the hope, that's what the word Christian means. Sometimes we go into a season of our lives where there's some, there's some drama, there's some tribulation, maybe at work, maybe in a relationship. I don't know what the case may be, but you've all experienced it. And what we do in the way that we handle that situation, we either embrace Jesus as our Savior in the trial, but sometimes we can distance ourselves from him. You guys realize that? Well, I un, I'm a Christian, you know, but they should not have done this thing, and, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go after them for it. I'm going to get them fired. You know, I know I'm related to that person, but this was the last straw. They've been treating me like this their whole life. Now, by your reaction to that situation, are you looking like somebody who is Christ-like? The way that Jesus dealt with 
Judas? Or are you distancing your relationship with Jesus so that you can have something happen to somebody or benefit from a circumstance because it's what you want? I don't know if you've ever been in that situation, but I have. And what we do, in a sense, we're Christians, we go to church on Sunday, we volunteer, we tithe, we, we donate for VBS craft supplies, but... I was talking to a brother last week at the pastor's conference, and there were some issues that came up between a couple of churches. There were some issues between the pastors that came up, and, and for the first time ever, I had, I had heard that one of the people was considering taking legal action, and I, I just I flipped out. I'm like, are you kidding me? You, you guys are pastors? You're talking about taking people to a secular court? Figure it out. Get over it. You know what the Bible says? Rather, just rather you be wronged. Wouldn't it be better if you were just wronged than go to the world to try to settle your differences? Don't distance your witness for Jesus because you want to get something out of a situation or circumstances that, that you have, that you're in. Don't do it. It's not worth it. Because Jesus wants to show himself through that situation. Jesus wants to show himself in that relationship. Jesus wants to show himself through you in your workplace, but he can't do it if you want to distance him so that you can benefit from what's happening. Peter distances himself from Jesus. We sometimes distance ourselves from Jesus, but Jesus is known for his mercy, and his grace. And we also see with this distancing, there's going to be a restoration as well. This next section, verses 55 down to 65, the, the, the whole emphasis of this section is true witness. The word witness is used almost not at all in the gospel of Mark up until this time. This section that we're going to look at right now, it's used seven times in nine verses, over and over and over and over again. There's multiple types of witnesses. Peter has a kind of witness of the situation. They're asking the, the people that betrayed Jesus to give a testimony. That word testimony is the same word witness against him. Now the chief priests, verse 55, and all the council sought testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimonies did not agree. Do you see that testimony, witness testimony? They're trying to get people, you know, by law, really, they're supposed to have two, that, two witnesses that their stories corroborate. They connect. They're the same. But nobody could get one. Then some rose up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, He will destroy this temple made with hands, and within three days I will build another made without hands. But not even then did their testimony agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, saying, Do you answer nothing? What is it these, these men testify against you? But he kept silent and answered nothing. Again, the high priest asked him, saying to him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? Jesus said, I am. 
And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his clothes and said, What further need do we have of witnesses? You have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? And they all condemned him to be deserving of death. Then some began to spit on him and to blindfold him and to beat him and say to him, prophesy. And the officers struck him with the palms of their hands. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is the one true witness of the Father. When asked directly, when they asked him directly, what was his response? I am. I am. He is the embodiment of the Father. He is the true witness. Nobody else has a proper testimony or witness of who Jesus Christ is. This begs the question, again, sorry for the discomfort. Blame the Holy Spirit, not me, okay? But what kind of witness are we? What kind of witness am I? Again, I was talking to a different brother. I think it was just uh, Thursday or Friday. We were, we were talking, and, and one of the things that has really uh, frustrated me for a long time um, is how there's so many false witnesses of God, so many false witnesses of Jesus Christ in the world. See, I was born and raised in a, in a religious institution. I was born and raised and taught that what they taught was truth. And I grew up thinking that what they taught was truth. It was institutionalized religion. And when I started to get into my, my teen years, my late teens, my mid-teens, I started to ask questions. And this was the answer I got. Don't worry about it. You're too young to be worrying about those things. Why are you asking these questions? Just trust in the church. Just know that, you know, we're going to take care of the spiritual side of things. And you, you know, you pray, you, you tithe, and you, you attend church, and you're just going to be fine. You're a good kid. And I said, that doesn't answer any of my questions. By the way, I'm not a good kid. You don't even know me. I'm going across the street from your church after the service is over to smoke a joint with my friends. You think that's good? I want to know what this life is about. I want to know who God is. And I just kept getting brushed to the side. Don't worry about it, Tim. Don't worry about it. It wasn't until I was saved by the grace of Jesus Christ and I started to, to learn and to study the Bible that God opened my eyes and showed me who he really was. And it was from that point on that I've been crying out in prayer my entire life since that day when I, turned, when I was 19 and dedicated my life, the rest of my life to serving the Lord. It was at that time that I, would, I have not ceased to cry out, God, allow me, please, please help me to be a true witness of you. There's so many people who are a false witness, and I am not here this morning saying this to point fingers at other people and denominations. And I'm not trying, that's not the focus of what I'm saying. What I'm saying now is, God, there are others who aren't, but make me be your true witness. 
Even now, God, our church, the church that you have called to exist and be in paradise, allow us to be a right witness in the midst of so many false witnesses. You know, the Bible says in the end times, a great apostasy is going to happen. Do you know what the word apostasy means? It means falling away. Do you know how many times the New Testament talks about not being deceived? Do you get the picture? There's going to be a great apostasy and there's tons of warnings about don't be deceived, don't be deceived, watch, look, watch. I'm not making a blog pointing out all those people who are the tares, but I don't want to be one. And I don't want us to be one. When people hear the the Bible studies, when people meet the others that attend church, you guys, when they meet you, my heart's cry to the Lord is that those people would walk away saying, those people are true representations of who God is. Those people are the right representation of who Jesus Christ is. Do you want that? I want it. If you want it, you got to seek it. You got to ask. God, I don't want to be deceived. I want to know in truth and exercise what you've called, who you've called me to be in being your witnesses. In Acts chapter 1 and 2, Jesus says to the disciples, stay in Jerusalem until you get the gift from the Father, which is the Holy Spirit. And then you will be able to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. You can't be a witness for Jesus apart from the power of the Holy Spirit. So when you wake up in the morning, the first thing out of your mouth would be, God, please help me to walk in the Spirit so I will not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. Because if you're walking in the Spirit, then you are a right representation of Jesus Christ. If you're walking in the Spirit, you are a a true witness of God the Father and the demonstration of love through His Son that He wants the world to see and understand. Jesus was that. He was the true witness. He was the true witness unto death. And He was okay with it at this point. I am who you say I am. And the kingdom of God is going to be fulfilled. And the kingdom of God is going to come. And at that time, people are going to see those who were submitted and believe and those who were deceived. It's a warning. It's not a judgment. I want us to understand that this morning. The word of God wants us to understand that this morning. Then some spit on him and blindfolded him and to beat him. And said to him, prophesy, and the officers struck him with the palms of their hands. Now as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came, and when she saw Peter warming herself, she looked at him and said, you also were with Jesus of Nazareth. But he denied it, saying, I neither, nor, I neither know nor understand what you're talking about, what you're saying. And he went out on the porch, and a rooster crowed. The servant girl saw him again and began to say to those who stood by, this is one of them, but he denied it. And a little later, those who stood by said to Peter again, surely you are none, surely you are one of them, for you are a Galilean and your speech shows it. Then he began to curse and swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. I'm so glad that it didn't include what his curses and swears were. 
you know, <laughs> you know, many people believe that that Mark was Peter's protege, and and Mark was writing the account that Peter was given, and, he, and Peter's like, hey, leave this part out, the cussiness, where just say that I did it, don't say what I said. I'm really embarrassed of that still. The second time the rooster crowed, and Peter called to mind the word that Jesus had said before, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And when he had thought about it, he wept. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the power of your word. We thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you for not holding anything back when you teach us, when you show us, God. Help us to take these words to heart this morning. Speak to us what you have us to apply, what we can address as we look in the mirror in light of your word this morning. We want to be your witnesses in truth. We want to represent you well. I know I don't, Lord. I know Peter denied you thrice, and I've denied you 333 times. Maybe not in word, but in action. Doing things that, that I knew I shouldn't do, that distancing myself from you so that I could get out of a difficult situation my own way. But God, we don't want to be those kinds of people. Your word speaks. It's like a sharp, double-edged sword. It divides between bone and marrow. And God, we pray that you would divide in us that which needs to be addressed and give us the grace we need to continue. Your grace is sufficient. You're always willing to help us, to take care of us, even to restore us. We thank you in Jesus' name. Thank you.